Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everyone. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. This is Connor, and I'm here with the Yaskier to my Geralt. Uh, <laughs> that's unfair. That's unfair. I well, mean, there's limited choices. Yeah, I mean, uh, Pete, Pete told me before he started recording that I couldn't call him Yennefer, which personally I would think is a flattering comparison. It's very, you know, Pete, I think I think you're stuck too much in 80s mindset. You want to be compared to a girl. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I, what could I say? Uh, um, anyway, so you probably have some idea by now what we're talking about, which is Witcher. And, uh, I think we said before on the show that we're going to try to talk more about fantasy, including some fantasy books that we have in mind. But, uh, hey, there was a big high fantasy, definitely not prestige, which I think is an important point for me, but there's a, a fairly big budget fantasy TV show that's been hit over the last few months. And that is Witcher on Netflix. Um, and you know, I don't want to speak for Pete, but I've had a good time with the show and we're going to dig into why, uh, I guess my question for Pete is, um, Pete, let's assume that our audience has no familiarity with Witcher and drawing on your charming reserves of knowledge about fantasy and sci-fi. How would you describe this show? It is, uh, well, I mean, it's certainly grimdark. If I had to compare it to an existing fantasy series, oh, God, maybe the Black Company, particularly the Books of the South. So uh, the, the the Black Company is, is uh, a series by Glenn Cook that is basically about a mercenary band that is working for the bad guys. And at some point, they realize that the bad guys are running out of uses for them and they're going to wipe them out. So they switch sides. And at no point do they improve their character, but they end up being sort of the major champions and the uh, the the cornerstone of the resistance movement. And that that's not quite the Witcher, but I can sort of feel the resonance there. Uh, the 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 Witcher is a heroic figure in that he can do badass things, but his his interest in being the good guy is uh, very limited. And well, I, I think, think that's go ahead. I think Geralt is always being dragged sort of what the story wants us to believe is organically towards being the good guy. Right. Um, If you were to find fault with the show, I think you would say that that's actually that maybe it's uh, contrived or twee how he gets pulled into being the good guy. But I mean, I think that black company comparison is really interesting. Um, I think it seems to me like from what I know of other grimdark stories, Game of Thrones being, of course, the number one high fantasy grimdark. Um, or rather I should say a song of ice and fire, but like, it, like, it sounds like there's a lot of ones in this vein about, 
a freelancing adventurer, which is Geralt, who, you know, they're skilled, they're good at what they do. They are amoral or morally ambiguous or exist in the gray areas. Um, Oh, yeah. I, I'm an idiot. I forgot you talking made me think of the most obvious comparison, and that is Elric of Melnabone. Have you heard of those? I think so, yeah. Yeah, well, Michael Moorcock, who is definitely one of our, our new wave uh, authors, uh, did a whole series about, about Elric, and Elric was a, um albino from an extremely decadent race, um, he had a sword that ate souls, and he was basically just about the biggest monster you could imagine. And he he basically uh, turns on the forces of chaos because of, oh, well, I mean, uh, he's into a girl, basically. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I have read about this, uh, this character. Um Cool. So now we're laying the groundwork for some interesting future reading for me, potentially. Uh, I guess neither of us have read the Polish, originally Polish novels that Witcher is based on, although maybe one day we'll get to that on the show. Um, you said yeah. you just started playing the video game, right? Yes. Uh, after after watching The Witcher, uh, the first thing I did was go and play it. And I have a warning for you, Connor, for when you try and play it. There is a bug in the tutorial. So Uh-oh. I spent two hours trying to get past the cast magic session section and couldn't do it. And I looked online and I found out that you should probably just skip the tutorial and figure it out on your own because <laughs> it won't let you pass. And I mean, this is a multi-million dollar item. How is it possible that they haven't taken care of that problem? I don't know, but um, I'm loving the game so far once I got past that problem. I can't believe that you're disrespecting our troops, by which I mean game devs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> These people lay it out there all, all the time for us. They go through crunch. You ever been through crunch, Pete? If you haven't been through crunch, I don't think you should criticize these brave men and women. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think so. I think to be clear, if you haven't seen Witcher, I think a lot of people have. They're listening to this probably. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I think we both um, broadly recommend it. And I think that to be clear what we're talking about here, Geralt of Rivia is a mutated monster hunter called a witcher. He looks cool. He's basically albino with silver hair and wears cool black armor and has a cool sword. And he's going through what is basically a traditional high fantasy world with all the squabbling Kings. And there's a conclave of mages and there are lots of monsters for him to hunt. And a lot of it is pretty traditional, you know, medieval European high fantasy. There are probably some twists. uh, If you go through all the books and all the games and everything, but you're in pretty pretty firm territory here. I think these books were written uh, not too long ago, certainly within living memory, um, yeah. like 80s, 90s, and the guy's still alive, the Polish writer. Anyway, that's the that's the setup, and I I, I want to ask Pete what he thought of this TV show. But first, I want to say, as a teaser, I'll go into depth in this. But as a teaser, what I love about this show is that it is very resolutely not prestige TV. That's my read of it. Pete, what are your broad thoughts on Witcher? Um, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, it's because it is coming from a different perspective than most fantasy uh, franchises you see coming to the TV. Uh, like it, it's 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 not trying to create things on a on a on a class of nation scale that 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 sort of thing is happening. Um, it's not trying to. Um, to build a moral argument necessarily, at least at that level. And I like that too. I did find it, 
Um, okay, this is going to take a brain stretch, but if I were a libertarian, I would probably like this show very much just on that level because you can make the argument that yeah, you know, the Witcher does everything for coins, and he basically supports sides basically on on the basis of their their love of commerce. Like there's a lot of things going on there that that I'm I'm sort of looking at sideways, but they don't they don't spoil the show. I mean, there's a lot of rich things going on. I find the main character uh, unique, certainly certainly on the on the level of of fantasy TV shows, because usually when you're dealing with uh, with like fantasy main characters, you're dealing with uh, smug pricks. <laughs> and there's a lot of things you can say about Geralt, but he's not that. Like, he's down and dirty. He's mostly operating at a, on a peasant level, but occasionally gets drug into a castle. And I just, I, I found it fresh. And you don't find things that are very fresh these days. It, it seems like uh, you, can, you can describe a lot of shows by mentioning other shows at this point, and that's a, that's a disquieting development. Okay, so I have so many things to say in response to that. You went some th- somewhere very interesting immediately. I'm going to accuse you a little bit of having some left Twitter brain by by wanting <laughs> to turn this into a libertarian show. I think I think you might be trying a little bit hard there, but I will disagree with you in a somewhat uh, tangential sense, which is that the show that this most reminded me of is one of the all-time nerd favorite shows, that being Firefly. Because Firefly is, of course, favorite of libertarians for a lot of reasons, and uh, people love to have like to make the most obvious political critiques of that show, and I kind of get where they're coming from. One day we'll discuss Firefly on this, but I think what reminded me of Firefly was sort of like <laughs> uh, the hamminess, the monster of the weak model, very episodic, with a broader arc, um, kind of a an expansive narrative universe that is not trying for sort of the overarching well i guess i guess we get into the chaos magic theory we could like try to turn this into like a star wars level like what are the high concept elements of this world i don't really read it that way a lot of the way the show presents things is just sort of similar to firefly where firefly is like yep this is a smuggler we have to deal with uh that's what they are they're a smuggler and sort of which does the same thing it's like yep this is a king he's a shitty king and you all know how King is in high fantasy storytelling, right? Yep, that's this guy. Moving on, like, <laughs> uh, and just like just tone, production value. I wonder if this show will have a leap in production. I mean, it's it's not bad, but I wonder if it'll have a leap in budget since it's been a big hit, or if it'll just keep going down the road it's on, which is all fine. Um, but you know, I think my overarching read of Witcher is that it is so it is not intellectually ambitious. And, and despite being a big hit in an age when TV shows across platforms really feel like they have to be profound and deep rather than just entertaining and fun. And God, this show feels it's just so liberating how it does not. I mean, I made when the when the stills of this first came out to promote it, I was making Xena comparisons because it looked like it was just going to be a very hammy kind of a 90s fantasy TV show thing. It has an element of that. It's not like Xena because Xena is like... <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen Zena in a long time, but I remember it as being like uh, sort of goofily comical in a way that this is not really, even though there is plenty of comic relief. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it would be a mistake to compare it too much to Zena. I do think that it has almost more DNA with a show like that, though, in common than it does with a show like Game of Thrones, which is the obvious comparison. And it's such a liberating 
show to watch after going through after watching Game of Thrones pour I think hundreds of millions of dollars over eight seasons into building this you know se- seemingly sort of intricate they certainly thought it was profound and unique fantasy universe. I thought they were doing something that was, you know, distinctive in the history of television, innovative for the form, et cetera, et cetera. And they get to the end and it's just like, they had no idea what they were doing or what to do. And it didn't amount to nearly as much as we'd hoped that it would. Um, Witcher is never going to have that problem because Witcher, (laughs) Witcher has all of these broader arcs and questions that it wants to ask, which are mostly pretty boilerplate. And they all derive kind of from the like the freelancing buccaneering model. I think that his protagonist, I think Geralt's been compared to Raymond Chandler's protagonist, which I think is an interesting Yeah, that comparison. is interesting. Yeah, and I just think that like it's gonna be very hard for Witcher to stumble over itself unless it takes itself more seriously than it does now. Like the biggest trap for a show like this would be getting more money and taking itself too seriously. But right now I think it takes itself exactly the right amount of seriously. It is melodramatic, it is maudlin, but it is also sort of unsentimental and buccaneering. And again, you can't go wrong with Monster of the Week. That's what X Files understood so well. So that's my spiel on Witcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I you were you were talking about the comparison to Game of Thrones. I almost I I think even more about Lost, where like the, the compelling interest in Lost was trying to unravel the mystery and piece together what was going on, and it became very clear as season after season came that we'd moved well past the showrunners understanding the mystery, and it was going ad hoc, and that was such an interesting transition. It's like they started off looking like geniuses, and they turned out to be morons, and there's no danger of that with The Witcher, because The Witcher knows exactly what it is, and it's not trying to be anything more, and I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is my like, this is my ideal for TV. I really think that other forms are better at like, like, I think that novels, for instance, still are one of the best vanguards of trying to do distinctive things in storytelling, whether it's in a specific genre or not. A lot of that's just because it's a low overhead form that lets people do interesting experiments that may or may not work that don't have to justify themselves in the kind of conventional um, ways that, you know, big screen projects have to do this. And it doesn't have to be collaborative. It could be the project of one imagination, et cetera, et cetera. And the other end of the spectrum, so like Witcher, Witcher comes both from novels, obviously initially, but it also comes from video games. The reason this show is on TV uh, is because the games have been a big hit. So there's already a, a, a large base of consumers there for it. And this is interesting as well, because I think games, of course I have my profound biases, but I think in this cultural moment, like, what I'm most interested in are novels and video games. And I, I give my sincere apologies to film and TV, but like what video games have going for them. Yes, they are, you know, triple A games are obviously corporate and collaborative and produced um, with a very strong set of commercial interests involved. And they have a lot of the same, same things impo- uh, impinging on them. that other screen media does, but I really do think that it, at least in this particular moment, um, the, the sort of where we are as far as exploring what it means to immerse and give people a degree of agency within stories is still very much blossoming within games and will only get better. That's sort of a formal thing about games. And also where games are culturally, I've said this before in the show, I think that games compete to sort of be fresh and interesting in a way that like blockbuster film franchises no longer compete with each other in, uh, in those axes. And I think that like we're in a wonderful moment where there is a lot of, a tremendous amount of talent and competition going to the creation of those worlds and which has been part of that. So like it comes, it comes to screen from directions that I think are really interesting. 
And then it come it, when it arrives, it's not trying to be. <laughs> I keep using the word profound, but that's that's the, that's the keyword here. Witcher rejects profundity in favor of hammy storytelling, in favor of maudlin melodramatic, uh, you know, like stakes, uh, in favor of like sword fighting. That is, so Game of Thrones really wanted to do this sort of like fight master kind of true european sword fighting stuff this is like no way we're just doing martial arts choreographed fights (laughs) like Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're gonna spin through the air (laughs) and that tells you that that difference right there where it's just like no we're not gonna do our best to mime like medieval sword fighting we're just gonna have these guys spinning through the air and whacking swords like they're in a uh an indonesian martial arts movie is like that right there tells the difference between game of thrones and this this show (laughs) i love that thing where they hold the sword sort of alongside their forearm they do that backhanded sword thing i have i i cannot imagine that being a useful thing in real life but i keep seeing them do that again and again in running fights and i'm totally into it it looks cool as hell it's like the double in the sword thing i've always been a fan of that even though you'd be an idiot to do it idiot to do what uh, sword in each hand. Why is that stupid? Well, I mean, if you are dealing with a long and then a short sword, there's there's fighting styles where that makes sense. But like a long sword in each hand is moronic. Like you couldn't. It would be very hard to effectively fight that way, is my understanding. And when people do it, they look clumsy on screen. It'd be hard to fight effectively. I'm actually curious about this. Maybe someone that knows about sword fighting will will help us out with this uh, on Twitter or something. But I'm thinking like. I'm thinking this through and I'm like, yeah, you're presenting, like if you're actually trying to bring both blades into the fight, you're presenting like more surface area for someone to attack mm-hmm. and you're like scattering your energies as opposed to channeling them into one blade. Interesting point. Hadn't thought about that. Well, one of the, as long as we're nerding about it, like everybody knows that, you know, gunpowder did a long, went a long way towards affecting, you know, the use of swordplay, but the rapier was a big deal too. It's like, if you just, if you can just go in at a point and have something that's fast and effective, that cumbersome longsword is, is useless. And, uh, you know, I, I like the idea that they're doing almost rapier style fights using regular swords, not because it makes sense. Who gives a shit? It's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. All interesting points. Man, I'm just, I'm thinking now, at some point we should have someone who knows about sword fighting on the show. That oh, yeah, would be absolutely. A, fun, a fun episode. Um, if anyone's out there who knows a lot about sword fighting, get at us. We could maybe do this. Um, yeah, so let's let's nerd out a little bit here, Pete. Let's have a little bit of nerdy moments. I'm going to open my seltzer. I should just pretend it's here. But, um. <laughs> yeah, gonna, is it a white claw? I mean. Nope, just a straight. It's a spin drift. I'm I'm a nerd. No, it's all um, good, man. I had way too, in, in Grand Witcher fashion. I had way too much beet wine on Friday night, and <laughs> I I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'm still feeling a little bit off, if I'm being honest with you. But uh, let's nerd out. Like what? What? Uh, let me ask you this. I will tell you who my favorite character in Witcher is, and then I want to hear yours. Um. I don't think that my favorite character will surprise anyone if you've read my fiction. Uh, obviously, Yennefer is my favorite character because I generally find female characters more interesting than male in all kinds of stories. And in my work, there's usually a female character in the Yennefer vein who's sort of like navigating uh, these power structures, um, might have special powers, whatever. But like Yennefer is actually like a really good prototype for the kind of characters that I tend to get most invested in in my own work. And for for anyone who's not familiar with the show, Yennefer is 
a mage who was brought to the sort of like the mage's college. I forget what it's called. It's like Aratuza, I think. Um, there's a whole conclave of organized mages in this world who channel chaos and the magic system in Witcher, you know, there's a, there's a price, right? There's like a thermodynamic conservation of magical energy. When something else, when some magic energy gets expended, there's a price paid elsewhere. It's not always consistent, but it is like something that they make use of narratively. Yennefer was a, um, a deformed young woman who was bought essentially by this mage's college. They just buy kids and, uh, you know, brought to this college and trained and to channel her magic and then, uh, you know, had an operation done and became really beautiful. And like these mages, I don't know if these mages are, have eternal life or if they just um, live a long time, but like they don't really age. So she just remains like, you know, a beautiful female mage who's paid a price of infertility for that, you know, over decades. And she sours on the sort of like, the political maneuvering of these mages and kind of goes out on her own and has a thing with Geralt and there's a lot there. Anyway, my favorite character, Pete, who's your favorite character? And you can't say Yennefer. Sorry. Uh, there was, there was no risk of that because I'm, I'm a misogynist. So like, how could that happen? <laughs> uh, it's K here. Oh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to have to apologize. Which one is K here? Oh no, that's okay. That's well, I mean, most of the time he's, he's the black knight. He's the head of Nilfgaard. Oh yeah. I only know him as the black knight. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, um, he is, he's, he's in some ways he's like, uh, Gerald's, uh, dark reflection. He's grimly serious. He's only focused on the big picture. Uh, he, uh, he has like a, like a macro morality, like on the big stage, he's trying to do something that's, that's huge. And like his micro morality is non-existent. Like he will happily chop you up and eat you if it'll advance his goals. I find him to be a fascinating character and he's a perfect foil for, uh, for the Witcher. Yeah, interesting. You know, I feel like he hasn't been super well developed in this season. You hope that in future seasons we'll learn his backstory and what really makes him go. But yeah, he's the uh, dashing icy. I don't know if he actually leads the Nilf Guardians or if he's just sort of the Vader of the Nilf Guardians. I'm not really clear on that. But because um, of course, I, th- I could be wrong. But I thought he was the king. I I get the sense he might just be a a, a right hand man for whoever actually runs Nilfgaard. But we don't really get a lot of in. in information about Nefgardian politics other than that we know that prior to consolidating and becoming this empire that's sweeping across uh, this continent with the help of like what the mages consider misuse of magic. um, I I just, I looked it up on Witcherpedia and you're right. He leads the army. He's not the king. Right. So we don't know. We don't really seen up close in the present moment because one thing about Witcher that's been talked about a lot, there are three timelines can be a little bit confusing. It's intentionally confusing. I think might be the worst thing about the show because it's one of those cases of thinking that uh, making your viewers work or feel like they don't understand what's going on at a factual level is somehow lends, you know, an interesting complexity to your story. I'm not sure that it really does in this case, just because we kind of get faked out for a few episodes and then we're like, oh, these are different timelines. Get it. And then they'll converge at the end anyway. Yeah. It took me a while. Like the first episode, episode and a half, I was not really digging the multiple timelines. But once I was able to parse it out a little better and understand which which attached was which, it was fine. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't it didn't make me dislike the show necessarily. I mean, um, 
or at all rather. But yeah, so I mean, Nilfgaard is now sweeping across the continent. That's a big narrative driver here. I think it's an interesting choice um, to give this story. You know, I think this is based on the first one of the the novels that this writer did. So I don't think that they're totally freelancing it. I do think that it's interesting that like to sell this to executives, to get it made, you probably have to be like, yes, there is like, you know, a sort of world level threat as if we're in Star Wars or a Marvel movie or Game of Thrones. Um but like what's interesting about Witcher, of course, is not necessarily that it's all of the it's all of the sort of the text, the tapestry of things that are going on around that as characters maneuver for their own their own smaller motivations and their own um, smaller moral codes. And of course, Geralt gets dragged organically or not into really caring about a couple other characters, namely Yennefer and Ciri, who haven't even we haven't even discussed the lost, deposed princess of uh Sintra who has magical powers and I think in the games they develop her pretty I think she and Yennefer both get really developed in like Witcher 3 probably the previous ones too anyway I'm rambling again uh <laughs> Pete, I want to ask good. you yeah I'm gonna stop rambling I want you to answer this one first mm-hmm. um and I'm sorry to put you on the spot but I'm, I'm really curious I can answer first if you want but like what yeah. is your favorite what's your favorite moment thus far in Witcher oh ch- it's a tie. Uh, the The first one is when uh, Kaher walks into a room is and is concerned about a, a body double in there, shall we say? And his response is not to try and come up with some sort of test, a la the king, it, or the thing. It's to behead everyone. <laughs> I mean, that was just such a great moment. Uh, the other thing I, I really liked is uh well I mean it, it this may have mostly happened in my head but do you, do you remember when uh when he was uh fighting the ghouls yeah so for background there's like some zombie things that rise out of the ground where there's a bunch of dead people and your Geralt has to fight them yeah yeah so I I sort of realized it in that moment of the show and it's sort of been confirmed by playing the video game is that there's really an ecology that requires a witcher in this world because like when battles happen you get piles of corpses which makes ghouls show up and you need a witcher to show up or when uh uh when commerce breaks down then the roads get messed up you have like i don't know wyverns or whatever the hell else shows up like he literally he he and the people like him fit into this world as the part of the way things work. And when that when that connected with me, and I don't know why it didn't earlier, I liked it a lot more. Because that, I mean, that just, that that fleshes it out in a way that it wasn't there before. Otherwise, it was just some, some hero with some weird chemicals in him. Right, right. Interesting points there. A couple of things. We know, at least, though it hasn't been fleshed out a lot in the show yet, that Geralt was basically taken as a child and mutated and trained to be a monster hunter in this world that has a problem with monsters. And I think that like the monsters sort of arose out of some specific event. Like there, there haven't always eternally been monsters. So there's sort of a push and pull there. And like you said, it's sort of, there's a, there's an ecology here where the monsters are difficult for ordinary people to kill. So there's a lot of witchers running around freelancing, whatever their original purpose may have been. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is, a world that is depicted in being in being in immense chaos. And of course that's ironic because what they call magic is they call it chaos. That's the the force behind the magic system. Um, and it's one of which you have a lot of like balancing and, and rebalancing, kind of an evolution of roles, it seems like across this world. 
you know, in, in great high fantasy tradition, I'm not really sure how ordinary people would survive at all in this world. It seems just unfathomably dangerous, but that's typical. Like, that's, that's the same question I had in Skyrim, right? Like, how is anyone or, just like... Or Fallout. <laughs> yeah. Bethesda in particular is great at this. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think those are all, like, really cool things to harp on. I'm going to be cheesy here and give the most obvious answer, which is actually... I know this will indict my whole take on Witcher, but my favorite moment was the the most prestige TV moment of this series thus far, which is Yennefer talking to the dead baby on the beach. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so the baby is of this royal house that she's been attached to, and she and the baby's young mother get chased by an assassin because the baby is, I guess, the baby is female. Um and, you know, we're led to believe that, that whoever was married to this woman wanted the male heir. And so there's a whole chase across magical portals with an assassin who has this, like, deadly giant bug. And it's, like, a cool scene. And, you know, eventually their luck runs out. And then Yennefer ends up sitting on the beach with this baby's corpse. And she's going to bury it. And she's talking to it first. And she's basically saying, well, you might be better off dead. Uh, it kind of breaks down her miseries as a powerful but a fun, but deeply alienated and broken uh, mage in this world. And sort of like it could be read as cheese, this whole like you're, you might be better off to add the world is so miserable. I will say that the world of Witcher is so <laughs> is so uh, ornately unpleasant and dangerous and riven with loss and pain that I don't think she's being completely unreasonable in this case. Um and I think that the point that someone made on Twitter, I wish I could remember who, but uh, is really astute here, which is that that's the kind of scene, whether you like it or not, that a lot of these prestige shows are trying to get to. And probably Witcher did a better job earning it and making it land than a lot of these these uh, more pretentious shows do. And I think that partly they earn it because the, the world that they're rendering is just so <laughs> uh, baroquely hostile. But um, yeah, I thought that was cool. So I've got a question for you, and I, it's a, it might be an eye roller. I don't know. But could you define prestige TV? That's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked me that. Um, I'm not sure that I have a rigorous definition. I do think that one of the main defining traits of prestige TV is that it really wants to be held in the kind of esteem that the best films and the best novels are held in. There's a sort of self-conscious artistic effort to it. Um, and then, of course, in its early days, in the early 20th century, the go- going back to the so-called golden age of TV, right, with, like, Mad Men and Breaking Bad, there was, uh, yeah, this very self-conscious sense that you're pushing this long-maligned form forward. And I think it's important to remember, you certainly remember, because for most of your lifetime, TV was viewed pretty much universally as trash, right? Like, if oh, you're yeah. watching TV, instead of a good movie or reading a book, that's just trash. Um, Pretty much until until The Sopranos showed up, that was the take. Yeah, so until you were in your 30s, that was how this went down. And for me, you know, I mean, I remember clearly growing up and and TV was all trash. And The Sopranos happened, and then all the adults were like, oh, this show's pretty amazing. Can't believe it's a TV show. And then I remember, like, the West Wing people bitching about how The Sopranos beat them for all the awards because The Sopranos could do swearing and nudity. It's like, yeah, as if that was the only thing that was better about The Sopranos. But (laughs) anyway, we're getting off track. I I guess my point is, like... We, we've internalized this so much now um, that, yes, the TV, you know, not that it even needs to aspire to having the prestige. Like we we sort of take as a cultural uh, commonplace now that, it, you know, it's among our cultural conventions that, uh, yeah, TV is on par with 
the film and novels. And, you know, you may have your own personal preferences and shh, let people enjoy whatever they want. But like the point being that like TV is now sort of an unquestioned kind of central prestigious narrative medium. Right. And that is probably the best definition I can offer for prestige TV. It's, it's TV that wants to participate in that arc of acquiring respectability and prestige, if you will. And I think that this show does a good job taking us back and challenging that this show, to be clear, you know, I mean, I love it. it. It could certainly be called trashy, especially if you have if you have uh, what we used to call highbrow tastes. Yeah, I mean, come on, this isn't anything to, like. There's nothing. <laughs> it, it goes without saying, right? That we're not going to put this uh, this show on par with uh, you know the very best of film or novelistic storytelling. I take that for granted in the case of it. I think it's a refreshing. It's refreshing that it's not trying to participate in any of that, that it's just framing itself as episodic entertainment, that it has a monster of the week element, that the sort of dramatic um, force that it really wants to acquire comes out of, I think, pretty time-worn maudlin storytelling devices. Like, I mean, one of the last scenes of this uh, season is like the timelines finally converge and you have Siri running through the forest to Geralt finally uh, unite with him. And that's their destiny. The show's big on destiny, by the way. Chaos and destiny. I guess t- destiny is an ordering force against chaos. But yeah, it's like, it really is like, it's filmed the sort of like uh, Hallmark movie music. She's running through the forest with her gold uh, locks flowing in the air. And she gets to Geralt and you're like, oh, and it, it landed. Because I care about these characters at this point. But it's also like, yeah. I mean, it's also like, come on. <laughs> like, right. Take a step back and we're not really in prestige storytelling mode. We're just, this is like, this is 90s TV. This is Xena. This is Stargate. And that's fine. My, my point is that that's fine. That's what TV should be. Oh, it would be really easy to go look. Think about all the other children he rode by on his horse who are now dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, okay. <laughs> I, I, that, I mean, that that doesn't really do anything for us. It's supposed to be high fantasy. He's supposed to have a a, a magical fate connection with with this kid, and that's great. Yeah, and like a lot of it, I remember tweeting about The Witcher. No, I was tweeting about something else. Okay, I think what was happening. I'm, I'm reconstructing this in my mind. I think that I was tweeting when the first promotional shots of this this series came out with Henry Cavill uh, as Geralt. And I said, people were making fun of it on Twitter. And I, I did my counterintuitive take. As I said, like, look, if this is as hammy as it looks, and if it's a throwback to 90s TV, good. Basically, take I just gave you. Like, I, I want us to throw back and resist this, this prestige TV uh, arc of destiny. And I want us to just go back to having fun with the, with the medium. I was like, that's what it does? Good. And not only have my hopes been fulfilled, I, was, I think someone at the time said, uh, I could dig up the thread, but they were like, they were like, yeah, I mean, that's pretty. I think I said something like, yeah, like I don't need this moody Game of Thrones shit. Like, just throw me into a fantasy world, and like, yep, you're in a fantasy world. There are kings, there are wizards, there are monsters. Let's go, baby. And the show did that, right? And I think at the time, someone was like, yeah, I mean, the Witcher books, if you actually go back and read those, are like that. It's like. Geralt's fighting a troll. You want to know what a troll is? Fuck you. It's a troll. (laughs) It's a high fantasy world. There are monsters. There are wizards. There are bad kings. It's like, do you need that explained to you? Come on. (laughs) And the show show embodies that spirit. Um, And like you said, it's it's high fantasy. Like, Like, 
these are characters brought together by destiny, a word that gets used repeatedly after it's sort of abruptly introduced kind of halfway through the season, kind of half-assed, but half-assed in the best way where it's like, yeah, guess what? These people are linked by destiny. There's this big war going on. There are monsters. And now they have to come together and be a badass team. And we're going to spend the season learning the different ways that Siri and Yennefer and Geralt are all badasses. And then they're going to have to team up. And that's kind of cliffhanger that we're left on. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, more of that, please. <laughs> I don't I don't need this to be like a commentary on uh, the Trump administration or whatever else. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Well, as soon as as soon as I started understanding the nature of Nilfgaard, that's what I was very afraid of is, you know, it's it's sort of the 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 monolithic state actor that tries to give everyone equality versus. And I'm just like, no, no, don't do it. And they didn't do it. Well, I will I will ruin this ruin this for you a little bit and say that there is a moment that I thought reminded me of some of the uh, the Trump the very ham handed Trump analogs in culture, which is that only time we see a Nilfgaardian noble uh, is when one comes into Queen Calanthe's court uh, in one of the earlier timelines and gets humiliated and laughed out of court by her. And I was like, that's a little bit that that reminds me of some of these narratives, but that is not belabored further. And the show is is blissfully free. It's just blissfully free of a need to like <laughs> to be something special. Why shouldn't TV just be a, a medium where we put it on? The episodes last ever long. They, they last. They're propulsive. They move forward. There's action that is cool. The characters are badasses. Yes, let us have all that. Let me right. as a novelist worry about like in my fantasy, you know, vampire story. Let, let me worry about all the ways I have to complicate things. Let me worry about the sort of high level political content. Let me worry about all of the difficult things about storytelling. You guys just go out into the woods and you shoot your fantasy battle with wizards against the evil soldiers. And you know what? We're good. <laughs> yeah, that's that's totally where I'm at with this show. I mean, is how do you feel about all that? <laughs> Yeah, well, I I mean I'm I am the same way in that uh like there there's a lot going on in the world right now that's real that's going to take some processing that makes me very unhappy and I would prefer it not eat into my escapism time. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean like we're already putting so much energy into uh, into how the world is changing, or at least our understanding of the world is changing, that the idea of having everything poured into that vessel is just awful. Right. And this is where Game of Thrones screwed up because they made it about climate change. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need any of that. I mean, like, again, I enjoyed a lot of Game of Thrones. I'm, I'm, I'm setting it up as an antagonist in this episode, but I think it's really important to say this show, our show, uh, I should say, Witcher, yes, but our show is pro-escapism, a much maligned term. We've discussed this before, but like, like we're not, we're in favor of that. We think that media can do a lot for us just by taking us away from the actual moment we live in and our real lives. And I think that's a good, that has, partly because no one can understand that like, not every piece of art is for moral instruction, right? Like everything has to be like, you have to merge your sort of arts and media consuming self with your deeper moral self. And that leads to a lot of stupid tweets. That's what I've concluded. Um, <laughs> I think there's a place for both. I, I know you do. I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not maligning your interest in morality in stories. Uh, oh. I'm, I'm honestly not. I just... Hey, look, we can be friends and you could be a bad person, man. It's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
One thing I would like to make clear is while while Podside embraces the idea of escapism and that not every piece of entertainment has to be for your edification, Podside is for your edification. You are a better person for listening. That's true. You get your moral instructions from us. You let us worry about the other. <laughs> we'll, we'll translate it into moral terms for you. And in moral terms, this is a very fun show that you should watch if you like fun shows. Um, that's my take on it. I mean, do you have like other overarching takes you want to give? I feel like I've been dominating the mic a little bit too much here. Oh, that's OK. Uh, I would say that uh, if if we sort of look at the big streaming platforms right now we're probably there's probably four you know you you, you've got netflix you've got what hbo you've got disney and then you've got hulu i i well hold on you've got amazon and also apple so there's at least six that are throwing around serious money right now well it seems to me based upon what we've seen uh that netflix at least for now seems to have a better understanding of what people want from a show, at least what I want from a show, than the others. And I and I realize that it's it's way too early to 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 say that categorically. But the fact is they they are making high quality, low stakes material. And oh my God, do I need high quality, low stakes material. More please. Well, you're going to have to eat your words, Pete, when we decide that we love Apple's Emily Dickinson show. <laughs> oh, Christ. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> we better not say anything more about that or we're going to get canceled. Uh, but, um, well, I think, okay, I, I will challenge you a little bit and say, like, at some point we're going to talk about The Mandalorian, which I haven't watched it. But once I watch it, we're going to discuss it. And I wonder if we'll have, how we'll feel about that. Because it, it sounds like Mandalorian does a lot of the things that we're liking for Witcher, but I haven't seen it yet. So I don't, you know, and again, like I'm with you, like we've, we've lauded Netflix's choices before and I don't want us to become a pro Netflix show, but it is interesting how like, um, as these platforms kind of shift around and compete with each other, uh, the different ways they conceptualize what TV should be. And clearly of course, HBO remains the king of, uh, trying to reproduce the gravitas of Sopranos and The Wire, um, you know, their big hits historically. Uh, and that's fine. I mean, I think at, when HBO lands on something, like, of course, everyone knows that my favorite TV show ever is True Detective. Season one, rather. Um, yeah, I was going to say, man. <laughs> no, it's, well, just season one. I don't really care about the other two seasons. Uh, but season one, of course, is my favorite season ever. And like, yeah, you, you can't achieve that without doing the full bore prestige TV thing. And I think that, that that season belongs in the pantheon of American storytelling writ large. Absolutely, it does. Um, so like there, there is a place for it, for sure. It's just that I, I really don't think – I think TV is at its best in many ways when it's, when it's a derivative medium, when it takes stories that have worked well elsewhere – and makes them into a digestible kind of easy to engage with uh, screen embodiment of them. Of course, other other modes can work, but that is mostly how I think of TV. Um, and Witcher is doing that, like I said, from multiple directions. It's coming from the video game direction, from the novel direction, both of which I think are better suited to push boundaries uh, than TV is generally. But um, hey, I'll say this. I am really pumped for Witcher season two. It's one of the things I'm most looking forward to in the next, hopefully I get it in the next year. Um, and, you know, I have almost nothing bad to say about this show other than the obvious things that one could make fun of, because, again, <laughs> it's just a TV show. But that's kind of where I stand. Pete, you know, do you have any I think I think we're getting to a good place to winding it down unless we have other big takes, which you're welcome to spring on me. 
Oops, looks like we've lost Pete here. So I was talking to myself for the last few seconds. I'm not sure how much of this we're going to cut out. I might leave it up to Adam. Hey, you're back. Yes, yes, that was an interesting disconnection. Uh, I, I, I am dead certain that the comments that Connor just made were the best possible comments that could be made to wrap up this episode. <laughs> I mean, actually, I was just repeating myself. Uh, I'm not sure how much of that we're going to edit, edit out the kind of dead space there, but is, do you have uh, other thoughts you want to share before we send this out? Um, yeah, I think eventually we need to do an episode on The Witcher 3. I think you'll like it very much. It, it, it's going to it's going to tie into a lot of things that you like here. So uh, just just a teaser there. Oh, dude, I am extremely looking forward to it. And I think... Thank you once again, folks, for letting us ramble. And the only thing I want to say in parting is this. Toss a coin to your Witcher. Toss a coin. No, I'm not going to do it, man. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to put this song somewhere in the show. Don't worry. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Bye, guys. Toss a coin to your Witcher. Oh, Valley of Plenty. Oh, Valley of Plenty. Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty. At the edge of the world, fight the mighty horn that bashes and breaks you.